So Mark chapter 4 uh, is pretty interesting. It opens up with, um, well, there's a number of parables. Um, it opens up with the parable of the sower, which is a pretty famous one. And then there's a little explanation of parables. And then there's uh, a particular explanation of the parable on sowers. Um, and then later it will include uh, a much, much shorter parables on kind of a, a light, on a light stand and the, um, the seed that can grow, and particularly the mustard seed. And then the, the chapter ends with the story of Jesus calming the storm. So I thought we'd actually start with uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 10, which is Jesus' kind of explanation of why he uses parables. And then we'll kind of go back and forth and, and look at some of these parables. So in verse 10 it says this, uh, when he was alone, that is Jesus, when Jesus was alone, those who were around him, along with the twelve, asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything comes in parables, in order that they may indeed look, but not perceive, and may indeed listen, but not understand, so that they may not turn again. And be forgiven. So I'm pretty sure Jesus told a parable. They said, why do you use parables? And he told another parable. Or, or riddle. Um, because I, I think that's probably at least as confusing as the parable itself. So if I were to ask you, why does Jesus use parables? I mean, what would you say? And Jesus uses parables because. I was thinking when he says, Who has ears, let him hear. There's a great storytelling, so he would pick out a particular story that would prick somebody's interest. Those who were listening, those who had ears, would hear. Yeah, so I, I agree with Fred. Like, we know Jesus is a good storyteller, and so parables are a version of stories, and so it's just a way that he teaches. Yeah, to relate to everyday things. So we, we see it as like um, object lessons, um, kind of taking the more abstract or the difficult and making it easier to understand. I know when I learn parable, when I hear a parable and I strive to understand it, I learn better the meaning of the parable. Mm. Yeah, so I think this is an interesting comment that Joe's bringing up because it kind of pushes back against, I think, our normal inclination, which is, hey, Jesus is a good storyteller, he's a good teacher, he's trying to make things understandable. But Jesus kind of says, I kind of say this to kind of keep the secret a secret, to keep the mystery a mystery. You, know, you guys are on the inside, and so the mysteries are, are known to you. But on those on the outside, it's kind of um, cloudy, fuzzy. A fuzziness may kind of invite us to kind of press in, to try and clarify. Like, what are you, what are you saying here? Right, it's almost an invitation for further investigation. Yeah? When you kind of put it that way, it kind of makes it seem like those who really truly want to follow and understand Jesus would take the time to look at it as more than just a story. So it's more of like an invitation to, are you really going to follow me and try to understand, or are you just going to hear this story and blow me off? Right. Yeah, it's interesting. This is a pretty uh, um, important part of Isaiah 
that Jesus is quoting. So this is not the first time Isaiah has been quoted in the, in the Gospel of Mark. Right out of the chute, he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, A voice is heard crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, which is the very first kind of messianic text, kind of promise that God would send a Messiah to deliver Israel. And so now he's kind of going back to Isaiah. So, you know, we have uh, words in our culture that kind of serve as, as trigger words, either positively or negatively. And, and right now in the, you know, mess of, of the media kind of being bombarded with all things political, uh, those, those words are hot and heavy, you know, so I, I try to avoid them. Um, but in the uh, context that Jesus is in, um, when he goes to cite Isaiah chapter 6, which is what this is, this is Isaiah's call narrative. It's the story of when Isaiah was called to be a prophet. That, that was a, a trigger, and, and mostly a positive trigger, because it has to do with the prophet hearing from God and delivering the word of God to the people, which would be good news. I think the, the context of Isaiah is probably worth considering more closely. So it's the year that the king has died. Uzziah has died. And so Isaiah has come to the temple. So um, people debate a bit what that means. I think when tragedy strikes, it's easier to kind of turn to God. <laughs> you know, you get a bad report, uh, you know, uh, you lose your job or you get diagnosed with an illness or um, things don't go right, you know, the car breaks down. It's kind of easy to kind of turn to God in those settings. And so the, the king's dead. What are we going to do? And so the prophet shows up at the temple, right, which is you know, normally the place for the priest. Not to say that they excluded the prophets, but Isaiah kind of shows up. And he has this vision of God. And this is an old praise and worship song, actually. We sang kind of growing up. He was high and lifted up in this train filled the temple. Carol, we need to bring that one back. Maybe that could be a Wednesday night song. Um, and so he has this vision of God. And um, God says, uh, or, or in the vision, um, there's an angel who comes and takes a coal from the altar and places it on Isaiah's lips, which I take to be kind of a metaphor for kind of cleansing or purification. And God says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. <laughs> I'm imagining his lip was burnt. That was just a joke. Because <laughs> he said he touched him with the coal. Anyway, it's best left unexplained. Um, so he says, here I am, send me. And, and then God says this in response. Um, they'll have eyes that can't see. They have ears that can't hear. They have hearts that won't turn. And, and they won't be saved. So to break that down, okay, you can go as a prophet, but they won't see you as a prophet. They won't hear you as a prophet. And your ministry as a prophet will have no effect. Not what you would have hoped for, right? Having had a vision of heaven and then responding positively to the call of God. They will not see you as a prophet. They will not listen to you. And what you have to do and say will have no effect. Now, if that were you, what would you say in response? Remembering that this is all in the context of a vision with the Almighty. 
So what might you say? I'm up a creek, yeah. That's certainly what I might be thinking. Thanks, but no thanks. You like we offer, you know, thank you. Uh, can I decline now? If it's ineffective, why bother? Why send me? Yeah, I, th- I think those are legitimate things to think and say. Isaiah's response, which I think is brilliant, was how long? How long will it be like that? Which I think is... I mean, he was on point, right, when he, when, he, when he came up with that response. And then God says, well, there's a remnant. You know, it's, it's a very important passage in Scripture. Without it, there, uh, you know, half the youth groups in the United States would have not had a name. Um, yeah. yeah, the remnant was very popular 20 years ago, 30 years ago. God says there'll be a remnant. And, and, and just about the time I imagine Isaiah is kind of settling in like, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have a people, you know, they're going to listen to me. He says, but then they'll be destroyed. Utterly destroyed. The city will be destroyed. Nothing will be left but a stump. And then Isaiah 6 ends with this sentence. There is a seed in the stump. Um. The NIV kind of plays with it a little bit. I'm, I'm not too fond of it, actually. I, I, I like just the bluntness. There's a seed in the stump. And that's, that's how the call of Isaiah ends. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what Isaiah is supposed to do with that. So uh, chapter 7, Isaiah starts to prophesy. There's a new king. Um... Uh, who's the new king? Ahaz. Yeah, I have read Isaiah. Uh, there's a new king, Ahaz, and he is up against um, a hard decision. He has the Assyrians, who are the most powerful people group in the region. And then he has the Syrians and the northern kingdom of Israel, because they're in the southern kingdom. Ephraim, it's sometimes called. So their brothers and sisters in the northern tribes and Syria has formed a unit And they want to attack the Assyrians. But they don't want to attack the Assyrians and have Judah on their southern flank. So they basically have offered the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, hey, you can join with us and we'll go fight this northern kingdom that we're against, the the Assyrians. Or we can just attack you and take your stuff and go fight them. Because they didn't want to go fight them and have have Judah on their southern flank. So Ahaz um, is, you know, left with that decision. And so Isaiah, now the new, newly minted prophet, comes on the scene and he says this to the king. It's kind of funny. He says, God will take care of you. You can trust in God. And the king's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good. And so he's kind of like, he, he's the one, right? He's the one who has eyes that don't see him as a prophet, has ears that won't hear him as a prophet. So Isaiah's prophesying away, and Ahaz is like, I've, I've made a treaty with, this, with Assyria. I'm good. <laughs> you know, it's that northern kingdom. They're going to be in trouble because Assyria is going to wipe them out, which actually they did. But um, Isaiah is not deterred. The fact that he's not being seen and not being heard, and it doesn't seem to be having an effect. He just goes right on in headlong and says, uh, God will give you a sign. 
anything you ask for, for, from the highest thing in heaven to the lowest thing on earth, God will give you to you as a sign that he will be with you. And the king's still like, who let this guy in here? And then Isaiah says this, a young woman will give birth to a child and he will eat cottage cheese and honey. And before the child is old enough to know right from wrong, the Lord will have delivered you. Now, Ahaz pretty much ignored Isaiah. Kind of like God said, they'll have eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear, hearts that won't change. Now, we can often be quick to kind of criticize biblical characters sometimes when they They've made the wrong choice, and obviously in hindsight we can say, oh, he should have listened to Isaiah. But all I got to say is, if I'm the king of Israel, and this, this new prophet shows up in town and says a baby's going to be born, and he's going to eat certain things, and he's going he's gonna, to, uh, before he's old enough to know right from wrong, this is going to be resolved, I'd be like, do we have any other prophets available? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's almost as though the seed and the stump, which is what the, the riddle, practically, that Isaiah was left with, has set him on a track of speaking in code. Like, God says to Isaiah, there's a seed in the stump. Isaiah turns around and says to Ahaz, there's a baby that's going to eat cheese and honey. Uh, what, what, what is a, a reasonable person supposed to do with such comments? Um, of course, that passage in Scripture gets picked up later in Matthew as a reference to this kind of prophecy about Jesus as the Messiah. In Isaiah, though, the very next chapter, Isaiah chapter 8, a baby is born. It is the second son of Isaiah. And by the time he is born, the, the issue was resolved. So there was a very practical, very living um, kind of fulfillment to Isaiah's prophecy in the moment. Now, other people say that the child that's born is not Isaiah's son, but Ahaz's son. Because Ahaz's son, Ahaz was pretty ungodly as far as the Israelite kings go. But Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, became this very, very godly king. And so some think that the prophecy, at least in its contemporary setting, points to, to Hezekiah. And others say, no, no, it's uh, Meleh Shalah Hashbaz, which is the name of Isaiah's second son. Yeah, and it's also the name of my favorite jeweler in Bethlehem. Um, it's a young guy about my age whose name is Meher Shalah Hashbaz. This is totally off, off point, but, there's, but if you go to Bethlehem, you should look up Meher Shalah Hashbaz, um, who was named after Isaiah's second son. So if, if Ahaz represents the generation who has the eyes that can't see ears that can't hear, hearts that can't understand, then I think at least in the story of Isaiah, Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, represents the remnant. Because by the time Hezekiah comes to the throne, the northern kingdom has now been destroyed by the Assyrians. And, all, and we actually have just a remnant. All we have is Judah and Benjamin left. The rest of the, the, rest of the nations or tribes of Israel have been, have been wiped out. And so I think Hezekiah, in a way, represents that remnant. But the problem, of course, is that Hezekiah 
does not end well. He starts off well, revival, going to worship God, going to be better than my dad. But as he grows old, in Isaiah 38 and 39, he kind of sells out to the Babylonians. He invites the Babylonians to his birthday party. And when Isaiah's riding in, he's seeing the Babylonians ride out. And he's like, King, why'd you invite those guys? Because they're going to come and take all your stuff. And, and the king is like, oh no, when's this going to happen? And Isaiah says, to your children's children. And Hezekiah's response is one of the worst things I've heard. He said, oh, that's good news. So you're saying they're not going to come and take it while I'm alive. Yeah, forget my kids and grandkids. Isaiah, the rest of Isaiah, that's in the chapter 39. The rest of Isaiah no longer speaks to his contemporaries. It only speaks to the children who are in exile. Isaiah 40 picks up from there, and that's all the stuff that Mark keeps referring back to um, about how God's going to send a deliverer. I think in Isaiah's call, the Isaac can't hear, Isaac can't hear, Isaac can't see, ears that can't hear, hearts that won't understand, is, is Ahaz and his generation. I think Hezekiah is the remnant. And I think the seed and the stump are the, the Israelites who go into exile. I think the stump represents a destroyed Israel, but I think the seed in the stump represents the exilic Jews that God will nevertheless bless and return. It is, it's not insignificant, I think, that Jesus tells a parable about seeds. They say, why do you speak in parables? He's, he basically gives them another parable. He says, well, because you guys can understand, but so other people won't. And that story is itself a story about a seed. A seed that, at least in Isaiah, I think, represents kind of Isaiah, literally, represents Isaiah 40 through 65 or 66. But Isaiah 40 through 66 are stories like this. A voice is heard crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord. Uh, a man of sorrows who's beaten and uh, bloody, who's... Um, our transgressions are forgiven because of, and our sicknesses are healed because of. Who, uh, in Isaiah 61, um, is still part of this whole messianic Isaiah section, you get the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set free the captive. Which again and again and again, those passages get used to talk about Jesus in the New Testament. So what's the seed in the New Testament? Yeah, I think it's Jesus. It's, it's more than just a message. It's not reducible to a minister is going to say the message of the gospel about Jesus' death and resurrection and the forgiveness of your sins, and some will hear it well and some won't. It's more than that. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about the king of the kingdom of God. It's Jesus who is the seed. 
And he's trying to say this in a, in a community that is about to tear itself apart. I mean, imagine, I know it's hard to imagine, but imagine a place where the people of God can't even get along with one another. That some of them, some of them have so acclimated to, to the culture that they can't differentiate what's going on in the culture from their faith. If, if Caesar or the Romans hear that Jesus is preaching about a kingdom, he gets stumped, stomped. If Herod hears this, he gets stomped, right? If the Sadducees, who are kind of compromisers with the Herodians and the Romans, hear it, he gets stomped. So he's got that one whole side of people that are ready to pounce on him if, if they pick up on the message, but then he's got, on the other side, these people who are expecting a deliverer who will look pretty much like a Roman conqueror, except that he'll be Jewish. Right? He'll function the same way. He'll, he'll, he'll come in with military and economic and political might and power. And here's Jesus. And he tells us this parable about a seed. A seed that I think represents him as much as it represents anything. And, and here's the message of the seed. The kingdom of God is like a seed. Does a seed come in? Do you plant a seed and the next day you have a forest? How do seeds work? Slowly. The kingdom of God is like a seed. It's going to come and it's going to be slow but it's going to take root in the life of people. And it's going to start to have an effect. Some people can't hear this, but some people can. And he, and he takes in his, his 12 and others, and he starts to explain to them how this thing is going to work. And it's, it's, it's different than perhaps what they wanted or expected. It's different than... What would, you know, the powers that be would generally be upset about. But at the heart of it, it's this, it's this message of this slow and steady development. Now, right on the heels of that, he tells this kind of parable of the light on the, on the um, light under the bushel. Because I think some people say, well, oh gosh, I've been waiting all this time. And, and your message is, I should hurry up and wait. Like, I, I, don't, I don't want a seed. <laughs> I thought the seed got planted when we got taken into exile. I, I, I want a deliverer now. And so he says, no, you know, we're going to put this light out there. All right, that's good news. It's, on, it's, not, 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 it's not being kept secret. But then he says, but pay attention to what you hear. The measure you give will be the measure you get, and still more will be given to you. Now, I can't think that that means if you work hard, God's going to bless you. God blesses those who blesses himself. I mean, how's that go? God helps those who help themselves, which is actually not in Scripture. Right? It is the grace of God. It is a gift. But I do believe this, kind of what Joe was saying earlier, if if we're faced with the parables 
And instead of just kind of thinking, oh, that's cute, or oh, I get that, and moving on, if we, if we see them as almost an invitation to, to dig deeper, to, to, get, to, to you know, get down there where the seed is, and, and figure out what's, what's going on. How, what, how might this affect my life? How might I be able to live differently? Is there a third way to live in this world? And yeah, I think, I think we're right there. Um, there are other um, interesting kind of things that are going on in this, these next few passages, but I think... I think one of the questions I wrote down for us to consider is whether or not the different parables in chapter 4 are different messages or whether or not they're the same message kind of retold again and again, um, which is something I would, I would like us to consider. I'll just say this. Um, Isaiah chapter 6 is referenced in the first part, but then later in verse 29, he, he makes reference to this sickle which I believe is a reference to Joel 3, Joel 3.13. And in verse 30, what can we compare the kingdom of God to? It's almost a word-for-word um, a quotation from Isaiah 40 again. Back to Isaiah 40. So we, we say we love Scripture, um, and, and Christians do. I think we do. I mean, we're out on Wednesday night Bible study. Um, but we come from a tradition uh, of kind of reverence for text. That is, the, the Jewish faith and culture out of which Christianity grew was a culture that was familiar with and had a high regard for their sacred text. And they would read it in the synagogue. And so when Jesus goes to teach and he starts to use these phrases that they would have heard and they would have known and they would have recited, particularly the Messianic ones, um, I think it would have meant a lot to them. Just a, just a little bit more on chapter 4. Chapter 4 ends um, not with a parable, but with an action. Kind of going back to Jesus' similarities with uh, kind of the Old Testament prophets, as we call them. The, the prophets would often um, behave somewhat bizarrely, and then they would explain... Or, or they would do something um, that kind of made sense of it. I mean, Isaiah prophesies three years naked. We've got to be happy that that doesn't happen anymore. Amen. Hey, man. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. I appreciate that. Um, uh, Jeremiah buys the pot and smashes it. Um, Ezekiel builds the sandcastle, then lays down next to it. At another point, Ezekiel digs a hole in the wall and climbs through it. That's not like normal behavior. Um, Jesus uh, will do some pretty bizarre things too sometimes, but um, when we come to the end of chapter 4, Jesus is not doing, I mean, I guess it's bizarre because it's unexpected, but, but Jesus, um, they go out on the sea, he's sleeping, like how could this guy be sleeping? We're going to die out here. They wake him up, and he speaks to the storm and says, peace be still. I don't think there's anything in their background that could have prepared them for that. I think, I think it knocked their socks off. 
I mean, they'll, they'll say at the end, well, who is this? I mean, e- even, even the, the sea obeys him. In any good story, there's a bit of a kind of foreshadowing and flashbacks. You know, anytime you see a movie or read a book or well, even watch a television show, there's no good story that just kind of starts at one and then chronologically goes to the other, kind of just slowly unveiling itself. That's, that's not, it's just not good storytelling. Um, the Gospel of Mark is good storytelling. And I think this event, this kind of calming of the storm, in a way is a little bit of the gospel in a nutshell. It's like this guy we're here, this guy we're following, this guy who's going to talk about this slow growth and, you know, moving people in and being different and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's just not another teacher. He's the son of God. He's the calmer of storms. And I don't know how much we believe that anymore. I think we sometimes suffer a bit from a thinly veiled atheism. That is, we, we behave like we got to do it ourselves. We don't actually put our trust in Jesus. That, that Jesus can do, that he can change, that he can deliver, that he can provide. And uh, I think Mark, after all this discussion about the gospel and the seeds and the lights and all the teachings and parables, all of that kind of culminates in this kind of miracle story, which in Mark, more often than not, is not just healing, but is something extraordinary. Um, not just somebody getting better who is sick. It's, it's like raising the dead and um, casting out a demon and feeding the 5,000 or the 4,000 or walking on the water or calming the sea. Those are all different stories. And this is, this is the first of that type, that nature miracle. All right, this has been good. I appreciate it, everybody. Uh, thank you again for coming. Um, this is, uh, it's nice for me. I, I enjoy it. It's uh, hopefully nice for you. Uh, next week, we'll come again. Uh, Mark chapter 5. It's just two big stories in Mark 5, um, not as, as opposed to several little ones. And uh, some of my favorites, actually. Uh, Jairus' Jairus's daughter and the one with the issue of blood, I think, is uh, one of the most fascinating stories in all of, all of Mark's gospel. On Sunday, I encourage you to come on Sunday. Um, we're still in the, the Kingdom Come uh, series. And we're looking at a city on a hill, and we're going to be focusing particularly on global missions um, and what, what a city on a hill might mean in the context of kind of a global sharing of the message. So I encourage you to come. All right. God bless. Go in peace. <laughs>